This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. Hey there, React Podcast friends. I'm back from vacation and I've missed you. Today, I thought we'd start with a question. How many times have you written a state reducer? A hundred times? A hundred times this month? There's one big challenge with state reducers as they are today. It's tricky for our human brains to write performant state mutations in immutable terms. Even saying that just kind of gave me a headache. Now, maybe you're whip smart and you've got the theory on lock, but the resulting spread hell is hard to read long term. Michelle Estrada of MobX fame wants you to stop writing state updates with immutable APIs like spread, concat, and slice, and take a second look at mutable ones like property assignment, for each, and push. He's made it really easy, and the React team finds this idea very interesting. I sit down to talk with Michelle about this wild idea of state producers in Emmer, why they're in the spirit of React, and why, even in 2019, it's not a good idea to roll your own state management library. Listen cautiously, though. After this episode, you may never want to write a reducer again. This week is brought to you by G2i. Some developers are generalists. That's great for them. But if you're listening to this show, you're probably not. You found a perfect hammer in React, and you're looking for nails. To find React opportunities, you could join an agency or a consultancy and hope to land on a React project. But you'll likely end up patching WordPress or updating Drupal plugins. Not with G2i. G2i only works on React and React native projects. That's it. So you get to wield that React hammer like the god of thunder himself. Beyond that, they do their best to match you with projects that showcase your unique skill set. Great with Redux? You got it. Prefer Apollo? No problem. Great with styled components? Let's do this. Check out G2i today and get matched with React roles that are fully remote at companies who are serious about quality software. Go to g2i.co and click the For Developers link to discover opportunities. G2i. We vet. You hire. It's that simple. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi. It's good to have you. I have, um, I've been really excited about this call for a long time. I've been like, it's been on the calendar and I've just been like waiting to, 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 to get to it. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Good. I've been traveling quite a lot like last week's and now I'm back home again. <laughs> it's always better if you were away for a while. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Now, are you traveling uh, mostly for conferences right now or, or, or work stuff? No, mostly conferences. Gotcha. About how many conferences do you do every year? Uh, I try to stick to uh, about seven, eight. Okay. Nice. And uh, mostly mostly in Europe? Yeah. Yeah. Mostly uh, Europe. Okay. So cool. Two weeks ago, I was at um, React Next and Reactive Conf. Mm hmm. Uh, and also did a meetup at uh, Wix. Oh, awesome. So how has speaking um, been for you and and how long have you been doing it? How, it's a pretty big transition when you go from kind of just like individual contributor to a company or at a company 
uh, to kind of like speaking and sharing your ideas and, you know, talking to big crowds. How is that? How has that affected uh, like the way you think about things, um, kind of your experience as a developer and working on teams? Like, how's your experience been? I think that the most interesting thing you learn from it is that like you learn to express your thoughts more clearly. Mm. Like, like you have to um, make sure to get a point across in a pretty small amount of time without repeating yourself too much. Yeah. And I noticed that like using metaphors a lot really helps. <laughs> <laughs> That's something uh, cool I learned from that. But so yeah, it went basically from uh, nothing to doing to doing it uh, frequently. Yeah. Was, uh, quite a funny, uh, quite a funny road. I yeah. think I started. My first talk was I think exactly three years ago or something. Okay. Which conference was that at? That was ReactiveConf. Okay. That uh, the first edition. So uh, I'm still not sure why they did ask me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm really glad they did. And yet, I don't think my first talk was that great, um, but it was a good start. Was it on uh, Mobex your first talk? Yes. Nice. Again, it was uh, called actually observable, but yeah, it was uh, it was the same thing. <laughs> That's awesome. I have noticed in your talks specifically um, that you really do spend a lot of time trying to get those analogies um, right. Um, which I really appreciate because I am I'm one of those people that's very dense when it comes to new material. Uh, so it's having those parallels has always helped me and be like, oh, OK, like I I have at least like a decent mental model for what this thing does now, even if I don't fully understand it, like I can uh, I, I can understand it a little bit enough to like hear why it's why it's good. There's a funny uh, story behind that. Um, because the first public uh, speaking I did was not like on tech, uh, but I occasionally speak in my local congregation. Oh, wow. And so there are analogies uh, uh, and metaphors are even more important than like in a tech talk. <laughs> and so I really noticed that that uh, keeps your attention uh, to the talk. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, that was something I brought from uh, that area <laughs> into my talk. So it's <laughs> really helping, I feel. Yeah, I've noticed the same. I think that so much of my speaking is inspired by um, by our church and kind of heavy analogy usage. And it's. It, I think it really is a valuable tool. And especially when you have a very short time to get a, get an idea across, um, it, it really helps kind of... the taking something that someone already understands and mapping that to something new is such an amazing tool. So how did you, um, how'd you get your start in programming? Have you been a lifelong programmer or uh, has, did you kind of transition careers um, after a certain period of time? No, no, I have been in a lifelong programmer. I think I started um, maybe even at primary school, but I think a little bit after that. Really? Yeah, basically my brother had a uh, like IBM 268 uh, and he was playing games on it <laughs> and I was playing with uh, Visual Basic, I think, or something like that. That's awesome. What was one of the first programs that you ever built? That was when I had uh, Latin classes. I still don't speak a word Latin, uh, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I had 
classes at moment in time. And then I built a small application like to practice the words. Okay. Uh, and eventually I sold that application to my teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I said, so I, that was the first time I made money uh, programming. Uh, That's amazing. Do you remember how much you sold it for? I think for something like 100 euros or something. Wow. That's awesome. And so it was to be used by all uh, Latin classes. So it got installed on the school network, uh, et cetera. I'm not sure if that many people in the end actually use it. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, don't look at the code either. But <laughs> That's incredible. So is it kind of like, like a flashcard type program? No, it was a Delphi program. Oh, wow. Um, and... Um, I think it actually had some support for grammar in there or something. Wow. I think it had words and putting uh, verbs in the right form or something. That's amazing. I remember when I, when I, when I first started, I took a class and we would do some of those. Um, my, my friends and I would make those kind of word games where you would like a create your own adventure where we would like ask you a question and then you'd like say like, I want to go this direction or that direction. And then you would either like get stabbed or like find a pot of gold or something like that. Those games are still fun to play. They really are. Yeah. I still, every once in a while when I see one pop up, I'm like, I, I'm going to spend at least a half an hour on that. Why not? That's awesome. So what brought you then to react? Wow. That's a fast forward of a few years. So at the company where I work, um, and Nick's, we have th we have this um, application development studio. Um, nowadays they're called uh, low code platforms. Um, but anyway, the idea is that you have like like you have a Microsoft Access or something. You have a studio where you design applications, and that was uh, that is a uh, desktop application written in C sharp. And at some point, we figured we wanted to have a uh, light edition of that uh, okay. web based. And so at that point, you discover that like other architecture that does make sense in desktop application doesn't make sense in uh, web applications, uh, how you load assets, uh, how you update the screen, uh, etc. And so most importantly, we noticed that like what we did in the uh, C sharp code base is just if something changes, we re-render the whole uh, UI mm. and it totally doesn't matter because it's like forms like crazy. But when you use the DOM, you totally can't do that because it's like horribly slow to just... Uh, <laughs> yeah, to reinsert a whole tree. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was the point, like, what framework can help us there? That was basically the question we asked ourselves. And so what we really liked about React was like the neat component-oriented architecture, mm -hmm. uh, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, also very relatable how desktop applications are built. But then the problem was there was no way to efficiently update the directory if your state lives outside your tree. So you have to subscribe and then manage all those subscriptions. And that was eventually the uh, problem of Big Set Out to solve. Mm -hmm. But in short, that's how we entered uh, React Land. So we wanted to uh, have a very component-oriented uh, architecture where we still had the feeling like we had lots of control. So in Angular, mm -hmm. you also are working in a component-based world. Um, 
but level of control you have feels a bit uh, lower. A bit hmm. So you mentioned working in C Sharp was was your experience in React was that the first JavaScript experience that you had, or um, and then also how was it kind of coming from C Sharp into JavaScript? Because I know that a lot of C Sharp is a pretty beloved language. It has a lot of like really nice uh, language features that um, that don't exist in in JavaScript at all. Yeah, that's true. Um, no, I did uh, JavaScript before. I, okay. Uh, uh, I did quite some uh, work with Dojo. Okay. Um, so, so I think the first like really big JavaScript framework, which also has concept of uh, components, etc. But uh, well, it's all a lot more verbose and uh, dated. Mm-hmm. Um, but so in that sense, I didn't have too much trouble of switching to uh, to JavaScript. Nice. You you mentioned uh, MobX and trying to solve the problem of an external state tree. Is there something similar in the tooling that you were using in C Sharp that you borrowed those ideas from? Um, no, because in uh, yeah, I, I think something exists actually in C Sharp, but we didn't use it. Okay. Uh, but we really didn't need to because like everything was fast enough to naively update everything all the time. I see. So that was the that was the big difference uh, for us. So our goal was to write components um, as if they are updated automatically all the time. So that's hmm. basically the projection that Mobix makes. Um, people often consider it more like uh, a way to think about reactivity and state management, and that's all true. But the ultimate goal was like I wanted to write a component. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a render function. Uh, and I don't want to be thinking about when it should update or how it should update or what it should connect to. That is basically the, the goal of uh, Mobix. So you write the components as if they are rendered automatically all the time whenever uh, they should render. Yeah. Well, it's an insanely popular pro- project. I, I think that there's very few uh, kind of React state management libraries that have kind of ascended to that that state and definitely you're part of that discussion with like you know redux which is like insanely like had like meteoric success but it's always like kind of like meaty or redux versus mobx um so you have like an amazingly successful product was this your first project on this scale in open source uh yes i did a few small libraries but more for internal purposes but this is the first one i made public how was that? I mean, that, that seems like a pretty big jump going from kind of like just kind of a handful of projects to something that really is in that like zeitgeist of, of React. Was it overwhelming to have a project that was in that people, many people's minds and apps? Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, it's, it, first, it, it took a while. Uh, uh-huh. And then at some point, you start to discover all places it is used. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing about open source, you can write an open source library and you just don't know where it's used. And like, yeah. <laughs> at some point, people from Microsoft uh, and people from DICE came to me like, oh, we're using Mobix. And you just don't know. That's, that's, that's <laughs> the fine about it. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty weird. What are some of the most surprising places that you've seen it used or like heard of it being used? 
Um, that's, I think, by far uh, in the Battlefield games. Oh, wow. Uh, it's just in, uh, in Battlefield for the in-game UI. That's incredible. Uh, that's especially incredible <coughs> because um, they're not even using like React DOM or something. They have their own custom renderer for React. But they're still using Mobix to make sure that those uh, custom renderers uh, get uh, updated more efficiently as they were able to pull off without. Yeah, that's by far the most fancy application uh, <laughs> I know of. It still breaks my brain that React is being used in things like Battlefield. Yes. <laughs> yes, that was my first uh, thought as well. Like, you are using Mobix. Yeah, it feels like we've kind of like come full circle, right? Because like React was kind of brought out of this idea of like uh, game UI engines and and now React is kind of inserting itself back into, you know, games like Battlefield, which is nuts. Yes, but I also think it's like what the makers of React had in mind the whole time. Uh-huh. Because there has always this support for customer renderers and yeah. uh, the fact that they've proven it continuously with React Native that it doesn't have to be the DOM makes it clear that they're usually thinking further ahead than we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I thought that uh, in particularly with um, seeing all the stuff that came out this this month with, uh, or I guess last month, with um, with hooks and suspense, um, what was your reaction to that? Just speaking of, of, of them being so many steps ahead of where we're at. So in, in regard to uh, suspense and concurrent uh, rendering, um, so, so we bet three years ago, uh, on React, basically, because like every stack you're going in for a long-term project is basically a bet. Yeah. And it's like the fact that they keep pushing those con- kind of concepts, which no other framework is even trying, that's uh, every time that confirms the initial bets for me. So suspense is for me just a confirmation of that. I, I didn't work as, uh, with it that much, so I didn't need it that much. Um, I see which problems it solves, but the fact that it is happening itself is like why I keep working primarily with React and not mm-hmm. a uh, spin-off or a framework that might be easier to set up, like uh, Vue or something. But the fact that these these kind of things are happening all the time, specifically in the React space, that's why I'm basically thrilled to be and stay in this uh, community. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's it was there was kind of a long period of time there in the middle where they were working through all of the um, fiber and you know setting up for concurrent React, um, but now that that seems stable, the amount of stuff that they're introducing just seems wild and absolutely needed for the the UI space. What are you What are you more excited about at the moment the uh, the hooks proposal or or the the suspense? stuff <laughs> uh, that's a hard question um, <laughs> from a practical perspective i'm super hyped about hooks because mm-hmm. they, um, okay so my first thought i was like um this is ugly <laughs> <laughs> yep yep my, my second thought was like 
this is a little bit of ugly, like in the Mobix <laughs> way of ugly. Uh-huh. And the third thought was like, I tried to build some things uh, with it, and like, oh, this solves so many problems. Yeah, yeah. So, what are some of those problems in your mind that it that it solves for like you and your teams? The most important thing for me is like the the composition, which is way better, and that is actually a result of the fact that you can now have um, isolated state and isolated lifecycle hooks within a single component. Mm. So you are needed higher order components for that to like have that isolation preserved uh, or do other weird stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, I uh, wrote the Mobix React bindings uh, as experiments. Uh, I rewrote them in hooks. Oh, wow. And that's, so there's actually now a, a package uh, made with some, somebody else, Mobix React Lite, which uh, took that code and turned it into a uh, package. But it's, it's so much clearer. So, in original bindings, it's always like fighting with, I need some state variables, mm-hmm. need to be on state, and, but they shouldn't collide with other stuff. And um, I needed to do some wrapping around render and it's all hacky and monkey patching stuff. Sure. And, uh, needing a lot of uh, symbols uh, to get it all uh, separated. And with hooks, it was just 10, 15 lines of code. And it was basically everything. And it's like, all clean and made so much more sense. And it's it's hard to express because hooks don't really enable something new in React. So, so that's mm-hmm. the weird part. But just the isolation of uh, state was especially so important for me. Yeah. Yeah, that is the weirdest thing about hooks is, is that they seem, it's not something new, right? It's not a new concept, really. It's just a new execution that, makes everything so much easier and everything so much more isolatable uh it it's just wild like it was it feels like it was there all the time it just needed to be uncovered which is weird yeah there are so smart uh, such smart decisions and some of the tiny tiny details uh, mm-hmm. uh and hooks like usually i saw a lot of complex components with heads Complicated component will receive props, mm-hmm. uh, which need to execute side effect, etc., etc. Yeah, and I noticed that when rewriting them, um, that array that they they put in a second argument where you can say like, okay, these are the props and pieces of state this effect effectively depends on. Um, mm-hmm. Entirely removes all that boilerplate, which is yeah. really hard to get right. Uh-huh. Because that's that's a lot of times where the errors live, right? Like, is is mistakes in logic in that portion of the code? Exactly. It's usually not in the, in the side effects themselves. It's in like what should happen if new properties comes in. Yeah. So, what does something like hooks mean for um f- for MobX long term? Like, do you think that that'll be the primary mechanism for um using a library like MobX? I think it will push uh, Mobix a little bit more uh, outside of the components, like we'll, we'll be able to manage state outside the components. Mm-hmm. But because it was syntactically so convenient, um, people that were using Mobix outside already usually just started to use Mobix for local state as well, because it was sure. uh, more convenient to work with uh, than set state. 
and that's no longer the case with folks. So I think in that sense, things will be more clearly and more cleanly separated. Okay. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is one thing that people have historically had a hard time determining with state management libraries is what should be kept local and what should be propagated up to kind of that, that state management library. Yeah. I usually have the, the, the rule of thumb. Um, if your computer uh, crashes or if your browser crashes, what state do you still want to have? Mm. Um, and usually the things you still want to have after your uh, browser crashed, that's usually the state. Um, it's very rule of thumb to put outside. Yeah. And usually all the rest can be compiled in state. That's really interesting. It, it's, it's nice that now it's a lot easier to decide to use component state because i imagine before um there wasn't a lot of motivation to keep something local to a component if it was easier to put into mob x well um no that's not entirely true because okay um, with mobx you could still have it locally in the component so oh i it see it wasn't part of uh of state but it was still part of the component itself just as uh instance fields i see i see so, so that's um was less of a problem than, for example, in a Redux. Where With Redux. You could have only one store. Sure, sure, sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, does um, does the addition of suspense and the way that they're suspending rendering, does that have any major impact on, um, on MobX? Um, yes and no. I did experiment a lot with it. I thought a little, about, a little about it. So if you want to leverage uh, suspense, you can't use MobX for a uh, local component state because um, MobX will um, use normal priority updates to force component update. Uh, I won't suspend it. But well, that's basically also like the effect of hooks as well. So in that sense, it aligns and MobX should become more clearly for things outside components. And I expect it won't have much impact on state lifts uh, outside components okay. because for state outside components it's anyway the case that the signal source of true is basically the model you have outside your component tree so in that sense you don't have any uh, conflicting updates which are scaled separately because your domain state is always ever and only one state which mm -hmm. is unlike ui state which can be indeed be forked and uh, living in separate states at the same time that's awesome that's good to know so one thing that I really wanted to kind of chat with you about today is this um, this other library that you're working on that's really kind of started to gain a tremendous amount of popularity um, in a space that has already had kind of a lot of libraries, but none of them have really been a runaway success. And um, that is Immer, um, which I think you introduced a little bit earlier this year. Is that right? Yeah, I think I introduced it in January or February. February. Okay, cool. Yeah, so one of the one of the most interesting tweets that I've seen on Immer is um, is by uh, Sebastian Mark Bogge. He says, uh, "If you like MobX, I highly recommend following along M. Wistrada's work on Immer. While MobX is pr is pretty far removed from the vision for where we're going in React, Immer is dead on." Which is really interesting because I think that there has been a lot of 
MobX has kind of filled a part of the React component that has been really hard to deal with, that idea of like asynchronous um, set states and, and whatnot. So something that's kind of, it, it kind of solved the problem from a totally different idea of like where the default React component model is. Um, but it is really interesting that they see Immer as being like dead on with the vision for React. So can you tell me a little bit about what Immer does and why you think that it might be more aligned with the vision of React? So Immer helps um, with writing immutable updates. And so that's why it's perfectly uh, in line with the vision of uh, React, especially for local states where you want those um, updates to be immutable, to be able to do all the suspense and scheduling and uh, forking of state and replaying of state, uh, etc. So that's what it uh, helps with. And the reason why it is so popular or get, getting so much attention is basically is that it makes writing those updates really trivial. Okay. And how does it do that? So, so the big difference is with most other libraries is that um, it uses uh, the normal JavaScript APIs okay. and it works with temporal mutability. Okay. And um, I get to use a, a, a metaphor maybe. Oh, yes, a metaphor. Please do. <laughs> Those are the best. <laughs> exactly. Um, so again, back uh, at uh, high school, we had some of uh, the teachers which used, um, I hope it's the correct word in English, uh, overhead pre projectors. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so where you have a transparent sheet and you project it on the wall so that everybody can see what's, uh, what material is in there. And what uh, teachers usually did is they put a second, another transparent sheet on top of it. And that's where they start uh, scribbling on. So they draw mm. arrows to connect things and make notes and highlights, etc. And then the great thing is that um, at the end of the, of the class, you could just throw away that top sheet and his original one was still uh, modified and preserved, and he could use it again for the next lesson. Mm. And that is exactly the same thing that uh, Emmer does. So you give it your current state, and it starts projecting this state as a draft. And then you give it a function where you can do whatever uh, with a draft, whatever you want. So you can mutate it and uh, push things on arrays and delete keys and uh, everything you like. And when you look at, at it for the first time, that's it really looks weird because it seems that like you have this original state which is supposed <laughs> to be immutable and you just start messing around with it. Yeah. <laughs> but then what actually happens is that that originally st original state uh, isn't touched at all, even, if it, even when it uh, looks that way. But what it does is whenever you make a change to it, it quickly puts a transparent sheet on top of it, mm -hmm. like an object where the mutation actually happens. And so the original state isn't affected, but the updates uh, are happening on uh, copies of that state, which are just uh, made in place. And then when the function ends, um, that is the state that's being produced. It's frozen for you so that you cannot actually modify it afterwards. And you have your next immutable state. That's amazing. So the great thing is that you're working like with normal uh, JavaScript structures, while in fact, uh, you're producing an immutable state. That's incredible. because. I think that one thing, um, one thing I've seen, I think, in your documentation and talks is talking about this kind of new form of callback hell. I think, what was your name for it? 
I think it's also like a uh, spread hell. Spread hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where um, in order to keep you we have these if you need to make deep updates you have to do these like kind of like deep spreads where you're spreading all this stuff and then changing just this one property and like spreading more things and change you know adding this property or kind of slicing an array in half and inserting something where you need to insert it and there's this whole class of programming that we have to do now that is just opening up old objects and kind of inserting new values into them and so this really does give you a, it gives you that really nice way of just being like oh hey just navigate into here and add this thing to this list or kind of change the property or remove it but still having the benefit of mutability yeah that's amazing so how um under the hood these structures are still shared then they still have like a shared structure underneath yes so so the the state you've been producing uh is still strictly sharing whatever wasn't modified. So all the optimizations with use memorization tricks um, based on uh, object reference equality, they all still work. It's semantically exactly the same as if you would uh, be uh, opening the objects manually and putting the unmodified stuff uh, back in. That's amazing. So what technique are you using then to, um, to use that? Do you have data structures that you're building um, underneath that you or kind of do you have data structures that your library is using to maintain these under the hood? Or is it all just kind of objects and arrays underneath there? What are you, what are you using to keep that shared memory? Um, still objects and arrays uh, underneath. Um, so you have somewhere root of the tree. That's mm -hmm. where you start with. And only for that root, Emer creates a proxy. And the proxy, uh, whenever you ask a value for it, it can do two things. If it was ne never modified before, it will return the value as it was in the original state. Mm -hmm. And if it was modified, then it will return the value it has uh, in the modified state. And so as soon as you uh, make your first modification, uh, it will quickly copy the old uh, state shallowly. And so that so that you have a temporal copy uh, behind the scenes, and that's where the change is stored. And that process works recursively. So if, if you navigate over an object, exactly on the path where you're navigating, proxies will be created and not outside of it. And so that means um, as soon as somewhere on the path where you are navigating, change something, then that change will be recorded on a copy. And when the image function ends, uh, the only thing is just um, walk the proxy trees as far as it exists and uh, turn that into normal playing uh, objects again. And so you've been able to do this all like very per performantly then. Uh, from what I've seen, it seems like Immer performs ex exceedingly well. Well, I mean, it's still significantly slower as if you would uh, write a manual re uh, reducer, for example. As a rule of thumb, I usually um, say it's like four times slower. Okay. but uh, with this, it's, it's the same as like uh, every optimization problem. Updating the objects in JavaScript uh, is expensive. Um, mm -hmm. So even if it's four times slower, it still uh, costs next to nothing. True. Uh, so, so compared to like changing something in the DOM, those are things that are expensive. It's not uh, mutating a bunch of objects uh, or arrays. Yeah. 
Now, I know that proxies, which you mentioned, um, are a big part of the implementation, are not supported in browsers like IE11. So how does um, how does Immer handle support for, um, for ES5 environments? So for ES5 environments, it has a slightly different implementation under the hood. And so there, it kind of creates fake proxies, which are just normal plain objects, uh, where getters and setters uh, are used to detect uh, updates. And the, the primary downside of it is that it sometimes has to do diffing to detect if new keys were added, mm-hmm. which you cannot detect uh, in a more easy way in a S5 environment. But uh, the great thing is that in the end, semantically, it works exactly the same. Uh, it's just a bit slower on the S5 environments. But in most cases, we can skip the diffing. So it's actually not, uh, not that bad. So what are some of the practical differences then between this and other libraries like Immutable.js, for example? What's the big difference in terms of the API and what that means for developers? Yeah, so, so the big difference is that Emer, besides that produce function in which you wrap your logic, basically doesn't have an object API. It's use, using just normal JavaScript objects and JavaScript arrays. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have any own data structures. So that means that not only like library is, uh, can stay small, uh, but more importantly, that the API is familiar because everything you can use uh, for normal JavaScript objects and arrays, you can use in Emer. Um, being low dash functions, being maybe object methods you monkey pets into your browser, I don't know, they would still all work the same because they're, it's all uh, the normal JavaScript primitives uh, that are used under the hood. And that has two benefits. Um, not only that you don't have to learn a new API or that you don't have to convert your objects back and forth whenever you need them uh, as normal JavaScript data structures. But for me personally, uh, maybe the most interesting thing about this it's, it's very easy to uh, type with TypeScript or Flow because those hmm. languages perfectly understand normal objects and uh, arrays. So they also perfectly uh, understand Emer functions. I, th- I think the nice thing of that is that you're basically done with what you see in some immutable uh, libraries, this string queries where you write yeah. kind of query language to update objects, um, which is almost impossible to statically type uh, <laughs> and anyway weird to uh, adopt. Yeah, those, those are the benefits that I find so incredibly valuable about this library is that you don't have to develop a, a new style of working and you don't have to set mandates for like what the developer's environment should look like because it already understands you know, whatever environment they're using already understands JavaScript. And so you're really catering towards the developer experience in kind of sneaking into the environment that's already there, but adding functionality without creating new API. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's absolutely amazing. And I, I see very few tools do that um, successfully. So I'm just, I'm really impressed with the, with the approach that you've taken with this and um, how easy it is to kind of opt into um, into this nicer way of developing UIs or kind of working with data um, that doesn't require a lot of, of new, it doesn't do make a lot of requirements of the developer. Um, this is really, really incredible. 
Now, in terms of like how this actually looks, I know it's it's always kind of hard to communicate this over audio, but for someone who has written set state and kind of used that that functional form of set state where you take the old data and kind of return an object, a new object that's changed, this produce function feels pretty, pretty should feel pretty familiar to all React developers. Yeah, that's that's entirely correct. I um I, I love in your your video you have an uh, example where you're doing a reducer, and um and we'll link the video in the show notes. But when you're introducing this concept, you have a reducer and uh, you you give just like a three character <laughs> example of of how you can how you can change this. Um, what are some of the practical ways that that code? Can, or can you tell me about like you know your idea of like writing the worst reducer? <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think it's always skills like when developments are happen, um, that, that you try to zoom out and like, how does this look from a distance? And if you look at a distance at writing reducers, I mean, purely at the syntactical form of it, it's, it's worse readable code than the code you write <laughs> in the, an immutable world. And so um, you, you, you can praise uh, rightfully all the benefits it has, like in terms of semantics and all the benefits it yields. Um, but it's just terrible code to read. I was reading some of the examples, uh, even in the, the Redux documentation, and it's like, what is this reducer doing? <laughs> and then after a while, oh, it's storing the object under its own ID. And it's, it's like t so hard to, 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 to get it out there. Um, and so I always try to get um, back at like, what is the code uh, I want to write? It's what mm -hmm. I did with Mobix, and it's also what I did with email. Like, how do I want to write a reducer? Let's let's forget about the benefits. Let's think about the code I want to write, and which will be easy to read. Um, and so then I was like, okay, this is how I would like to write my reducer. And then the step after it is like, okay, now we can write it that way. I think that that's really great advice um, for anyone. Is like. Not to start at a low level, but to start at a high level of like, what do I want the experience of writing this code to feel like? And we'll figure out the implementation over time. So now we mentioned um, just objects and arrays under the hood that it, it, it allows you to do all that stuff. Does it work with other types of um, kind of more modern structures like sets and maps? Or is that just crazy? No, it doesn't work with uh, maps and sets. It could be made to work, but when I was working with it, um, that kind of feel felt weird. And I mm. don't know anymore <laughs> why. <laughs> but somehow it did it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, it's the same for classes. People uh, ask occasionally, like, can I use classes with Immer? And technically, we could support classes because we could like clone the, the prototype or preserve prototype property. But then the conceptual model gets weird because if you're talking about classes, you're thinking about classes and instances and instances that have stayed over time. And it's actually not what immutable data trees are about. They're about values, 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 and nothing has a state and nothing has a stable identity which mm. where you can refer to over time and then reason about it and how it changes about time. That's exactly the model that tries to uh, migrate away from. And so I think it could be made to work. Um, but then the amount of explanation you would have to do to make sure that people stay in the right mindset 
while still working with classes or maps or sets. Um, I think it would be horrible in terms of uh, maintenance explanation. I so far try to like scope it like, if you just think about objects and values as immutable data structures, keep it that way. Um, they're just values. They don't have states, so they don't need methods. Yeah, I think one of the huge values of this library is the absolute simplicity of what you're giving people. And you're really just giving people one function. Is that right? There are a few utility functions. Um, but yeah, all the core is in, uh, in one function. I I love that that idea that something that with so much power can be reduced down to, to, to one function. And I think that it gives people a really great opportunity to migrate towards this. I'm um, just kind of piece by piece instead of having to like top down, you know, transition a whole app. Yeah. That, that's how uh, people are using it. Uh, that they, they're, they're writing um, some reducers and email and they like it. And then they rewrite most reducers and email. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's one like super performance critical reducer that does, um, needs to do thousands and thousands of updates and mm-hmm. just don't use him for that single reducer. Interesting. Yeah, that that ability to be able to just kind of do it where you you want that high that experience and then kind of opt out very easily to to kind of get eke out those like tiny little performance wins is is amazing. Yeah. Yes. I I think. Um, one criterion I often uh, measure frameworks and libraries by is like, how easy is it to opt out when I need to? Yes. And that's very important. Uh, and it's also one of the things I used when looking at React. It's like, okay, if I really need to, I can still get to the DOM nodes, uh, mm-hmm. manipulate them, uh, and do some stuff with them without uh, messing up with React's internal state. Yeah, I gave a I gave a talk just recently, and I shared some advice that a friend of mine gave me really early on. And it's, it's that same thing. Like anytime you put a library into your code, ask yourself how easily can you take it out later when you realize that it wasn't the right fit or you need something else. And this absolutely has that quality where you can just drop it in, see if it works for you. And if not, it comes out super easy. Was that part of the design constraints that you had for it? Or was it kind of a, a happy byproduct of the model that you chose for writing it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, there, uh, the fun is there wasn't really a design process. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have this cool story. Like I had this problem and I wanted to design a solution for it. And uh-huh. I did. Um, but Immer is just basically a byproduct of something else. <laughs> <laughs> and that, so Imer is actually a really uh, kind of stupid story so uh, roughly one year ago or something I kind of concluded like okay proxies are now uh, common enough um, they're supported by all uh, evergreen browsers uh, they're now quite well optimized so I want to use uh, proxies for uh, MobX because it fixes some problems which are unsolvable by proxies uh, but Mobix is a, a big code base, so I wanted to do, to do some experimenting just with uh, proxies, like really understand them uh, thoroughly without applying it to Mobix code base, because then the service sure. context you're always in when you're uh, experimenting. And so I was like, okay, I, I can take uh, one or two days 
and I'm going to create copy and write collections uh, using proxies. So the copy and write uh, collections, many people in Java are familiar with, like you, you make an update and then you get, as soon as you do that, you get a copy back uh, or you can do the next uh, change. Mm -hmm. And so I did that with proxies uh, and it worked and I learned a lot. Uh, and after uh, one or two days I was finished and was, I was like, okay, uh, this is cool. And only at that moment, it dawned on me. It's like, wait, this actually makes uh, writing <laughs> read users <laughs> and send updates a lot simpler. And so only at that point, it's like, I was like, okay, how should the produce function precisely look? But it actually didn't change that much anymore at that time. Um, I need to fix the ES5 problem. That wasn't solved sure. at the time. But I didn't like set out to solve this problem. <laughs> at a certain moment, I realized <laughs> I had solved the problem. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of the good story behind uh, behind Ima. The original use case I had in mind for Ima was like um, we had those webpack configs in our application, and like for development and production and tests and uh, whatever, and they were almost uh, almost similar, um, but you had to kind of monkey patch them like. The, the third loader for CSS that had to change its uh, second parameter or something. Mm -hmm. and then you, you got from the development setting to the production uh, configuration. And so the original thing I tried to do is like, can I write a uh, library that makes that easy? Like where I can uh, take one Webpack config and just mutate it. Mm -hmm. All the difficult uh, spreading to get my new Webpack config uh, and then uh, have it. So that, that, that was the, the first thing I was thinking about when working on Emer, and it wasn't a reducer or set state at all. <laughs> That's awesome. So in light of that, has it been a huge surprise, the success that it's found? No, not really. Because at the moment I realized it, I was like, oh, I'm really onto something. Yeah. I mean, I, as, as soon as you start using it, it's like, you're like, wow, this is... This is uh, spot on. It's, this really solves a problem where a lot of people are struggling with. Yeah. Uh, and I did some Googling. Did somebody else do it before? And I couldn't really find anything. Uh, something's a little bit related, uh, but not with an API as convenient. So I was like, okay, this is going to fly. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny, at least from my perspective, when you first hear about the idea, it kind of feels like, why is this necessary? Like, like, why would we, why would we make it so that we can use the mutable APIs of objects and arrays instead of just using the immutable APIs that we have now? But when you see the examples and when you start, you know, applying it to practically to the code that you have, the shape completely changes. And it's so much more, like you said, so much more readable. I know for me, it's like every time I need to like, do that dance where I like slice an array and like insert a value. Like I always forget every time, like the, like where those numbers are supposed to be to like insert right at the right place and not be off by one every time. Um, and this really just kind of allows you to use APIs that, that read a lot better um, than the, the immutable ones. Yes, exactly. I mean, you notice that you um, have to learn some of those patterns by head. Mm -hmm. 
like basically this is pattern to insert something in an array this is the pattern to delete a property this is the pattern and as soon as you like start to learn patterns then you know that you that you're onto boilerplate and that yeah. somebody else has to learn the very same pattern to be able to read your code and to recognize what's happening yeah I love this. So you you mentioned that there it wasn't a huge amount of prior art in in this space, um, but were there libraries that that gave you inspiration and kind of a trail that led you to think about this problem in this way? Yeah. So I said um, mostly by the the, the copy on rights uh, concept, which mm -hmm. is uh, very well known, very well documented in all languages. Immutable uh, GS has also a kind of similar function where you have like temporal mutability to uh, update the data structures mm -hmm. uh, before it gets uh, sealed again. But I don't think I wasn't uh, wasn't looking at it too much at that time mm -hmm. uh, because I said uh, my my goal was not to replace immutable JS or something. My goal was to learn proxies. Yeah. So, but I, I think, yeah, mostly the, the, the whole field of copy on write collections, that's the, the prior art of this. Do you have any advice to people who are just kind of getting started in open source and maybe feeling a little hesitant to share ideas and whatnot? Do you have any advice for them kind of given your experience um, now in the open source space? Yeah, a few. Um, I think for first, um, for starters, you have to learn to like ignore that things can be done or shouldn't be done. Mm. If you have an idea and you think it's good, you just have to go for it. And then um, <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of standard advice, right? Um, and you have to try it a little bit. And if it feels okay-ish, then the hard part comes. Because at that point, you have to get other people to play with it. And for that to happen, um, Something must be very must be very clear, and that's what your mm. uh, idea and your philosophy uh, is behind it. And that's usually where I think uh, most projects uh, crash, mm. not because they're uh, not good enough or something, but because they're used selling themselves just in terms of uh, it's simpler or it's faster or it's better, like in terms of technical properties. But things that get people really hooked is like, what's the philosophy behind it? Uh, and what's the bigger picture problem you're trying to solve? Yeah. And like, uh, I'm um, following the, like, the state management field quite closely. And usually, new state management libraries appear, I think, still on a weekly basis. <coughs> and I usually uh, take at least like, the effort to read or read me. And with most of them, I'm just like, Okay, it's cool, but I don't get what the picture picture is. I mean, I, I, I can recognize some other uh, prior art in it, and I can see something which is syntactically slightly nicer. But I noticed that the, that the thing uh, which is important is what's the bigger picture uh, behind it. And uh, if you can communicate, communicate that clearly, and it's, it's a separate skill from uh, plural engineering, that helps a lot. And then it's really the... the um, the chance of finding some people who want to share their experience with your stuff because well clearly you're yourself are enthusiastic about the things you built yourself mm -hmm. but if somebody else is enthusiastic that means that the id uh landed and became clear uh it's valuable for uh all of us yeah i think that that is one great 
gauge of success is when you see other people using the library that you made to solve another problem or a, a higher level problem. Um, have you seen, I know that there's a number of libraries now that are using Immer um, with components or for state management. Um, are there some that seem like most interesting to you or kind of embody the philosophy best? So I, f uh, I find very interesting are uh, unstated and React copy and write. Mm -hmm. They're both quite similar. They look a lot alike. Um, actually, the work on React copy and write was uh, stopped because of the introduction of uh, hooks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but unstated uh, is interesting because um, it is small, it has a simple API, and it's nicely uh, embodies Immer in the bigger picture of a state tree that is stored in the, in the context. Very interesting. Well, it has been, um, it has been awesome talking with you and hearing about your, your ideas and the kind of serendipitous inspiration behind Immer. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you want to uh, kind of leave us with? Um, any recommendations, any projects that you're super excited about? people that you follow that inspire you, um, anything? A great recommendation I uh, always want to make is like, if you're at a conference, make uh, sure to not just attend the talks, um, but find the speakers you want to talk to, and maybe you don't dare, or maybe you're afraid not to be able to, I don't know. Uh, actually, don't know why people are afraid. Uh, don't notice. <laughs> <laughs> People have to, has this, are often hesitant to approach speakers. I yeah. mean, once they're familiar with or which they don't know yet, but really uh, approach everybody you want at a conference. That's how you get uh, the most value out of it. That hallway track is like the most important thing. I mean, especially now that you can watch talks afterwards. Like it seems weird sometimes because now like talks are like empty and then end up just being like a video online. But yeah, like, getting out there and talking with people that are building the libraries that you use and asking them questions in person and talking, you know, like we're talking right now just about the inspiration and, you know, what their thought process is, is, is invaluable. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, often I, I miss talks, which I wanted to go to because I'm still talking to somebody. <laughs> uh, and that's, I think the way, uh, how it should be, because like, if you miss a talk, you can all, always watch it back. Uh, but you can't replay a conversation yep. have, uh, in the cuisine. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate uh, you taking the time to meet with me. And I know that we uh, kind of had some like scheduling things and kind of moving it around. And so I really appreciate your time and uh, just talking with us about what you're working on and um, how it could really improve people's applications. So thanks so much for your work. Thanks for listening to this episode of React Podcast. Links and notes for this show are available at reactpodcast.com slash 51. As you go, I hope you leave inspired to build something around a cumbersome pattern. At times, it can feel like coloring outside the lines, but that's where the great ideas are. Don't be afraid to play around and see where it goes. I'm excited for you. Thanks for listening.
This episode of React Podcast was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson. You can find React Podcast on Spec, a network to help designers and developers level up. Visit spec.fm to find other shows that will take you further in your career. Help us out by reviewing this show on iTunes. Your reviews help the show grow and help us ensure great guests and awesome content week to week. To join the discussion, visit reactpodcast.com slash chat or follow us on Twitter at React Podcast. I'm at Chantastic. To stay out of the discussion but get updates, visit reactpodcast.com slash news and sign up for emails. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. We'll be in your ears again next week. 